to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got a couple hours of going against the grain for you as usual. And uh, (laughs) hey, starting with an assassination attempt on the former prime minister of Pakistan. So that's, I guess, how we're kicking. In Pakistan, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Kicking off things with a with a bang here. Uh, Seems like Imran Khan is going to be fine. He was shot in the foot. Um, yeah. Which is pretty remarkable when you look. I don't I I do not know. I did not have time this morning to look into exactly how that went down. But it does seem pretty remarkable that more people weren't injured, considering, you know, there's footage going around of what happened that you oh, can yeah. hear a lot of gunshots in. A lot. And yeah. this guy was like the the guy admitted the the shooter admitted uh, in a police video that. He intended to kill Imran Khan. And you look at the video, too, and it's just a complete mob scene right there are thousands and thousands of people Mm -hmm. all converging on this on this shipping container uh, being being towed by a truck. And Imran Khan is on top of the shipping container using it as a as a platform to, you know, wave at the crowd and and such. Um, Four other people were wounded, none of them seriously. One was shot in the face, but just sort of grazed. Um, Lucky. Yeah, there were a lot of lucky people out there today. Yeah. We'll talk about what is going on there with Imran Khan and beyond. Uh, We are going to talk in just a couple of minutes about Joe Biden's big speech at Union Station last night. Uh, And I'm going to give you a little a hint to the responses that I saw about the speech. Uh, They don't even want to win, do they? was the (laughs) takeaway, really. Uh, We are going to talk a little bit more about this peace deal in Ethiopia, which I feel like is really being greeted with uh, suspicion and joy in equal measure. We are going to talk about Olaf Scholz getting quite a lot of heat for going to China. Uh, We'll get into some more midterm jostling. We'll talk about the the annual vote on the Cuba embargo in which the world overwhelmingly condemns the United States for maintaining that incredibly cruel restriction. And the U.S., you know, brushes it off and and walks merrily along, uh, you know, carrying the flag of the defender of democracy and international law. We are going to talk about more calls for negotiation in Ukraine, just not from our Congress. And uh, we will talk to John about the frightening new government taking shape in Israel and also uh, a very personal experience you had with the potential for a violent response to it. Yeah, it was it was a crazy morning today. Mm -hmm. I'll tell everybody all about it. Yeah, Um, I do want to talk about this big speech yesterday, Joe Biden's speech on democracy and particularly on America's duty to protect democracy in these midterm elections. And I have a surprise for you, John. Would you have Uh guessed that we are at another inflection point? I don't know how many. I don't know how many inflection points Joe Biden has invoked since 2019, but it's been a lot. Um, And I feel like, you know, I mean, there's that joke about may may you be cursed to live in interesting times. But I do feel like (laughs) as as a rhetorical device, this is really losing its power. Uh, and whoever is writing these speeches should probably find another way of putting this. We've heard inflection point uh, more than I ever need to hear it for the rest of my life. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on what was in this speech, but I think what is probably more important is what isn't in it. And as I said, I was I was texting with a buddy of mine last night whose first reaction was they don't want to win, do they? Because it is 
five days before the midterms and consistently what Americans tell pollsters they are concerned about are issues like inflation, the economy and their jobs, gun violence, abortion rights, immigration, education, the pandemic. There was no mention of any of that. And the thing is, at least according to this latest morning consult poll I saw, Americans also still trust Democrats more than Republicans on a lot of important issues on almost anything Mm -hmm. uh, except for the economic and jobs issues. Is Joe Biden out there trying to build on that trust? Absolutely not. Right. So we have no mention of what Americans have said repeatedly worries them looking ahead to 2023. And instead, Joe Biden invoked the attack on Paul Pelosi. He invoked the riot on January 6th and Donald Trump's refusal to accept the results of the 2020 election. And, you know, I agree that all of those are scary things. And the behind the scenes effort to overturn that vote uh, was terrible. It should be exposed. Uh, The people taking part in it should be punished. Uh, Nutcase attacking Paul Pelosi is equally terrible, though, you know, maybe not the evidence of uh, concerted right wing violence that Biden would like to present it as. Uh, He invoked the harassment of election workers, you know, regular people who uh, want to contribute in some way to the sort of mechanics of democracy. Of course, harassment and attacks on them is absolutely deplorable. I am on board with preventing all of that. And I will even give you, uh, you, the Democratic Party, that, you know, you can't govern for the people if our mechanisms for transmitting the will of the people are in jeopardy. The problem is that these mechanisms have been, you know, rusted to to uh, almost unworkability for such a long time. They have been warped by money in politics. They're warped by the Citizens United decision. They're warped by the bipartisan agreement that politics must begin and end with red and blue. And there's no third party that you should speak of in in polite company. And so when Joe Biden gets up to say you have to fight for our democracy, you have to fight for the shared reality in which our elections are safe and the results are to be expected, that would be okay, except that Anytime someone from his party stands up to implore that Americans accept that shared reality, it's the reality that Donald Trump or his campaign staff were Russian agents or the reality that Russia was behind the Hunter Biden laptop fiasco or that the U.S. isn't 100 percent involved in Ukraine for reasons that have nothing to do with defending democracy. You know, it's this idea that. In reality, the nothing will fundamentally change president can also be the most transformative since FDR president or that the party that props up uh, Dianne Feinstein is somehow Mm -hmm. separate from the other party that thirsts for power. Right. It's the same reality Mm -hmm. where war crimes are a thing that exists, but the U.S. never commits them. And Cuba is a state sponsor of terror. And that's not a reality that most educated people can share either. Right. And so it's a really weak call. You know, I I do not think that there is no difference between Democrats and Republicans. I don't want to see a red wave in these midterms because I don't want to see reproductive rights eroded any further. I don't want to see gay and trans people called groomers and hounded out of their jobs or, or physically threatened. I don't want to see the social safety net slash. But that doesn't mean I am on board with this democratic version of reality. And so they keep trying to sort of team build 
through vague ideas like uh, support for this democracy that, again, does all it can to keep third parties off the ballots. And and this is politics, right? There is only so much team building you can do if you don't have any policy victories to back it up. And that's explicitly what they are avoiding out on the campaign trail. So I don't I don't know what impact this speech will have on anyone but a, a small and comfortable cohort of people who already implicitly trust Joe Biden's party. Yeah. And maybe yeah. they think the key to this midterm cycle is to just really activate those voters and let them go. But I don't I don't think that's a big enough population to carry you over the finish line. And so it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. And, you know, one thing that that nobody's talking about really is that the Republicans uh, don't have a, a, a program mm-hmm. for victory in this election. It looks like they're going to win the House and perhaps the Senate as well. But all they're talking about are things like impeaching Joe Biden, impeaching uh, the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, impeaching uh, Dr. Fauci, impeaching the whoever the head of uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement is. Yeah, They're talking about uh, long-term investigations, hearings about Burisma and the Hunter Biden laptop. They're not talking about anything substantive. And then yesterday, uh, Senator Mike Lee, the, the arch-conservative Republican from, from Utah, was surreptitiously recorded telling a group at a, at a dinner fundraiser that if the Republicans win the Senate, he's going to sponsor a bill that would phase out Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, that if you're too stupid or too lazy to save for your retirement, then that's on you. It shouldn't be on the government to take care of you. And the Democrats' problem is that they're not shouting from the rooftops that this is the alternative. Yeah. You don't have to like Joe Biden, but you should vote in your own interest. And a lot of Americans aren't doing that. Well, I also think uh, there's a lot of speculation that the Joe Biden isn't campaigning on that because he plans to make some kind of deal. You know what I mean? To to go halvesies on on uh, exactly what Mike Lee described. I mean, that I, you I'll never vote that, for a Democrat again if that happens. I mean, you have to also accept that if you think for some reason Democrats have some like compunction about lying on the campaign trail. Right. Uh, which I don't think they do. But again, they've just decided they have just decided the only thing to talk about is democracy and shared reality. And again, the state of the democracy they are defending is extremely weak uh, because of their actions as well as those of Republicans. And their reality is, uh, you know, I won't say necessary. Well, sure. You know, just in a different direction, as as bizarre and divorced from actual reality as the Republican version. And so it just. There's nothing there's nothing to actually hang your hat on. And uh, and it's a, you know, not a very compelling team to join. Um, That's right. I know we want to talk about your experience in Israel, but I think you're going to bring that up with our next guest. Right. So I want to mention also that um, we are keeping track of what's happening in Brazil, where uh, supporters of President Jair Bolsonaro uh, are still out in the streets. And yesterday uh, there were thousands, perhaps tens of thousands taking part in demonstrations, imploring the military to intervene uh, in the the transition of power. Right. Because Brazil elected by a narrow margin the former president Lula. 
Um, but in 24 of Brazil's 26 states, people came out to say they, they wanted the military to do something to overthrow those results. Um, does not seem like they are going to get what they're asking for, at least at the moment. Brazil's defense ministry uh, said, look, Peaceful demonstrations are allowable, but the ministry is guided by the federal constitution, which could be a reference to Bolsonaro's own words from his concession-ish speech uh, that he, too, will follow the constitution. And a couple of Bolsonaro's people have been out saying, you know, the military knows what their duty is. Constitution doesn't allow them to intervene in politics. Uh, it's time for losers to concede and think of the future uh, and implying that these protests were uh, were irresponsible. So we'll see. But I mean, if you look at video online of this, the size of some of these protests, they're pretty big. And again, you know, demonstrate to you just how divided this electorate is. You know, they, they have delivered the victory to Lula. There are questions about how much of Lula's vote was suppressed. Uh, but any way you slice it, it's a it's a you know, it's a pretty divided country that Lula is going to be taking the reins in if the military mm -hmm. doesn't do what they're being called to do now and intervene. Absolutely right. I yeah. couldn't agree more. Well, let's take a break, John. <laughs> And we'll get Sounds to our good. next guest and we'll talk about some some European politics, some more voices calling for negotiations without fear of recrimination and some other news. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Members from the group of seven major industrialized countries met today and will meet again tomorrow to discuss additional aid to Ukraine and to address Europe's energy crisis. Meanwhile, Ukrainian military officials told the public to, quote, expect good news, which the media are interpreting to mean that a Ukrainian attack on Kherson is imminent. U.S. military analysts say that a Ukrainian attack on Kherson would take until the end of the year before it's finally settled. Meanwhile, a White House spokesman said that North Korea is providing Russia with artillery. The Spanish foreign minister said his country would provide Ukraine with additional air defense systems, artillery, and ammunition. And the Polish defense minister said that Poland would build, get this, a temporary wall around the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad amid concerns that it could become a migration focal point. And in other news, Charles Kupchan, a former Obama administration official and now a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and professor at Georgetown University, has an op-ed in today's Washington, I'm sorry, in today's New York Times, calling on Ukraine to promise not to join NATO and to give up claims on the Donbass and Crimea in exchange for peace. The irony here is that if Ukraine had abided by the Minsk Accords in the first place, there would be peace and it would have been able to keep the Donbass. We're joined by Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's the managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks. Always great to be with you. Always enjoy our conversations. Thanks for joining us. Let's begin with the situation on the ground in Ukraine, if we could. The Ukrainian defense ministry has been just gleeful today in its announcement that 
appears to be about an attack on Kherson. But what the Ukrainians are not talking about is that winter's upon them, they have no electricity, the Russians are calling up additional troops, and a U.S. election could result in cuts in military aid. What do you think about an attack on Kherson? Wouldn't diplomacy have more efficacy at this point, especially going into winter? Yeah, well, it's a bit disturbing, as you describe it, it's gleeful. I mean, people have been dying, you know, uh, Ukraine's young men have been dying, uh, uh, you know, horrible deaths. Uh, so why is he gleeful? I mean, this has been a terrible war. And yeah, it, it could have ended a long time ago, I think. Uh, there were easy diplomatic solutions outlined the Minsk Accords. Um, you know, it, it's a senseless war. And yeah, I mean, I think Ukraine may feel emboldened by all the weaponry they're getting. But as you suggest, I think there's starting to be some rumblings and misgivings. I mean, we've seen some protesters at, uh, you know, figures like Barack Obama and Alexandria could uh, Ocasio-Cortez have had speeches interrupted recently by protesters mm -hmm. uh, rebuking their policies in Ukraine. Uh, and there's beginning of disaffection, you know, I think on the Democratic side, as well as many Republicans don't support spending billions on Ukraine. So, uh, you know, soon I think we're going to see, you know, potentially uh, protests and, and demands to to cut that uh, spigot off. So, you know, maybe then Ukraine will want to negotiate, but right now they're, they're pressing ahead and, and continuing this uh, horrendous violence. Jeremy, give us your thoughts on the G7 ministerial meeting. Presumably this is going to lay the groundwork for the G20 heads of state meeting that uh, is going to take place later this month in Bali. Uh, what should we expect to see come out of this? Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I mean, one thing uh, last year, I know it was like kind of love fest for Ukraine and, you know, kind of, uh, pr you know, promote and trying to promote a strong you know, Western front against the Russians and, uh, you know, trying to um, promote, you know, sanctions and alternative you know, as far as energy. I mean, there's some real economic issues. Uh, that these countries are dealing with as far as inflation and as far as the energy crisis. So how to deal with that is obviously, I think, going to be front and center. And then there's, you know, issues like climate change that they, you know, been very slow to address over years that, uh, I mean, they're paying lip, lip service to now. I don't know if there'll be any concrete, you know, uh, great things that come out of it, but there'll certainly be one thing on the agenda. Yeah, I think so, too. I wanted to get your your thoughts, too, on um, on military supplies. You know, we, we hear constantly that the U.S. is uh, appropriating another billion, another five billion, another 500 million. It, it's it's untold billions now. I, I don't even remember what the latest figure is of 30 billion dollars or something in terms of military aid to Ukraine and the uh, the Western European powers too, the European Union and NATO are also providing uh, military assistance. But what we're not really seeing in the American press or really anywhere in the Western press is that the Russians have a very close and productive um, trade relationship with China. The Chinese are uh, providing arms. We know that the Iranians are providing now artillery and drones. There are reports today that the uh, North Koreans are providing artillery. It's not like like the, the Ukrainians can just wait out the Russians until all of their weapons are destroyed. That's not how wars work. How do you see this playing out, especially in light of the midterm elections 
where if Republicans take over, we're likely to see a diminution in uh, in aid. Well, I think it underscores in part the point I was making earlier that this is a senseless war uh, that Ukraine is fighting. I mean, what do they ultimately hope to achieve? They, they've lost a lot of territory. Uh, they could, you know, maybe keep this thing going, but uh, for a little while. But just, you know, more and more people will die, and, and for what purpose? I mean, slowly the Russians are going to take more and more. I mean, Russians are stronger than them, as you say. They have uh, they have their own support uh, network, and yeah, this is really uh, shaping into a, a not just a proxy war, but almost a world war with so many other countries involved. And that, that's very dangerous that this conflagration could expand into other countries. Uh, so I think that's one of the major dangers that we see. Yeah, and, and I think that's one right. other thing is that I think that yeah. the U.S. is using Ukraine just to try and weaken Russia. But uh, Russia is coming out stronger uh, in the end. And, yeah, the, the U.S. You know, leaders pay lip service, but they really don't care about the Ukrainian people. They're willing to sacrifice them just for this larger geopolitical uh, agenda of trying to weaken Russia and the nationalist Putin government. I think that's exactly right. And you've had administration officials come right out and say that. Or, or former administration officials who are now at these, uh, these neoliberal uh, think tanks. Uh, that's the goal. The goal is to weaken Russia to the point where it'll take years or or decades to recover. There was a piece in the Washington Post today that said exactly that, that the goal is to make it so that it's going to take Russia 30 years to get over this uh, this conflict. And um, And that's why I fear that even if the Ukrainians finally come around and say that they're willing to talk to the Russians about about affecting a peace uh, a deal, that the Americans and NATO are going to uh, talk them out of it. Absolutely. That's what we see. I mean, and, and the Ukrainian regime of Zelensky, there's really a question of how independent that regime is. And does Zelensky really represent the Ukrainian people and their interests? Uh, and, you know, it looks like he's just kind of a tool of the Western powers and their, their nefarious agenda. And his own people are being sacrificed horrifically. Jeremy, give me your thoughts on what Western support for Ukraine looks like in the coming three or four months. People who are opposed to this conflict in the United States and elsewhere in Western Europe uh, are more and more vocal. If the Republicans, as we said a moment ago, if the Republicans win control of one or both houses of Congress, uh, you know, that may that may in effect put the brakes on a lot of American military aid to Ukraine. What about the what about the Western Europeans? Are, are they beginning to show cracks in this front? I think so. Well, there have been a lot of protests in France and Germany. You know, we don't hear much about it in our media, but I mean, a lot of it may center on the economic problems and huge inequality. Uh, and there had been huge protests before the COVID pandemic, you know, pushed people in. So I think, you know, uh, those countries are really dealing with serious economic problems and se serious ferment and unrest that's developing. And I think a lot of people are going to put their heads together and tie it to uh, this foreign policy agenda and, and the sifting of resources towards a war uh, that really benefits uh, very few people, you know, certain narrow special interests, and a war that is harming their economy and contributing to the energy crisis and other problems, including uh, inflation. And I think you're going to, you know, you've already seen that, as you mentioned, with the you know, Republican base uh, is not so keen on this war, and they see that there are adverse consequences for Americans. And why should Americans support a war that has no benefit for their own country, the 
but if, if anything, it harms our own economy and people are not stupid. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Charles uh, Kupchan was a senior director for European Affairs at the National Security Council under Barack Obama, senior advisor to the president. He knows Ukraine intimately. He's calling in this op-ed I mentioned for what many of us have been calling for since the beginning of the conflict. The Ukrainians would give up Donbass and Crimea and would not join NATO. The Ukrainians would have had a better deal had they respected the Minsk Accords in the first place. Why is this not acceptable to the Ukrainians, do you think? Is it because they know that they have virtually unlimited Western support, at least in the in the near term? Well, yeah, and that relates to a previous discussion that it's not so certain how independent the Zelensky regime is and whether he's actually acting in the interest of the Ukrainian people or whether he's just uh, acting the role of a kind of surrogate of U.S. and uh, Western empires and their uh, geopolitical machinations. Uh, and, you know, Zelensky, it should be remembered, was cited for corruption of Pandora Papers. And, you know, there's a pattern of uh, the West, you know, removing leaders in different ways they don't like. So, he may feel personally uh, his own personal career is at stake, uh, so he has to do what the you know, U.S. and Western powers want, which at this time is uh, to be used as a pawn to weaken Russia. So I really question, again, how independent he is, because I think the Ukrainian people would like to see an end to the war if they're thinking rationally. I mean, Ukraine coexisted with Russia. Uh, always, they've never had wars like this. I mean, there are certain, you know, interests and, uh, you know, divisions they may have had or grievances towards Russia at certain times, but it never escalated to this point. And they're, I mean, they're very close culturally. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a war. I think the people would want to see end very quickly and work out some kind of acceptable political settlement, like what, what Kupchan was publicizing. But I think there are you know, some larger agendas and interests that are blocking that, sadly. Yeah, it seems that way. I want to turn, if we could, to Israel, and I want to preface uh, this question with a uh, with a little story. I've been in Israel all week this week, and um, you know, th- there's a lot to see. It's very exciting, and uh, and very historic. So each morning, since I'm six or seven hours ahead of of you guys, I go out and um, and go see something different. Today, I went up to the Mount of Olives, and uh, there are a couple of important spots there, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Tomb of the Virgin Mary, stuff like that I I wanted to see. And um, there was one shop I wanted to go to in the uh, the old city, because I I generally don't buy things, I don't buy anything when, uh, when I come on these trips, but there was this one little trinket I wanted to buy. So I worked my way back uh, down the Mount of Olives. I went to uh, the Iron Gate, which is the the entrance to the old city that's closest to the Dome of the Rock. And um, because I had climbed about um, about 3,000 feet and then went down and then had to climb back up another five or 600 feet, I was a little bit winded. So I sat on a bench. There was an American woman also sitting on the bench. And... Um, we started chatting. Now we're about 25 feet away from the the uh, Iron Gate, and there are uh, police officers uh, standing there, like there are at every gate in the old city. There's a Palestinian guy who's holding a box, and he's just kind of milling around. Nobody's milling around. Everybody's walking, going about their business. This guy is suspicious looking. These three cops went over 
to ask him what he was doing. And we're watching this as it's happening. As soon as the cops approached him, he pulled a knife out of the box and he stabbed all three of the cops. One of the cops fell. Another cop shoved the, the guy to the ground and pulled out a gun and shot him in the head and killed him. They shut down the gate. Cops are swarming. That was my cue to get out of there. It turned out that there were four different attacks overnight in East Jerusalem, uh, all against the police. There were similar attacks in um, Nablus and Hebron overnight. This is an ongoing theme here. It's been an unusually violent year, um, with most all of the dead being Palestinians. Now the Israelis are in the process of getting a new government. Uh, this is a new government that is uh, going to be the farthest right-wing government in this country's history. It's going to include a man who, um, wow, who is a convicted felon nine times over. He's been convicted of terrorism. He's been convicted of of conducting drive-by shootings in Palestinian villages. And today, the Israeli media reported that he will likely become Israel's next minister of homeland security. Uh, this is uh, a guy by the name of Ben Gavir. Uh, he leads a new party called Religious Zionism that is overtly racist, overtly violent, uh, but they're the third largest party in parliament as of yesterday. And they control 16 seats that Benjamin Netanyahu needs to govern the country. What are your impressions of an Israel that has moved so far to the extreme right that even discussions with the Palestinians are non-starters? Yeah, I mean, what you describe is horrifying. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's really sad what's developed uh, in Israel. Uh, you know, I'm a Jewish myself, and I think I'm part of many Jew Jews and younger generations that are completely alienated from the state of Israel and its policies and its inability to seek a rapprochement with the Palestinians. Uh, and, you know, if Netan I mean, Netanyahu himself is uh, the you know, extreme right wing element in Israel that uh, traces back the Jabotinsky wing of the Zionist movement that has affinity more with European fascism uh, versus the you know more liberal elements of the Zionist movement have been crushed politically and are dormant and you know there's been no peace talks for years. I mean, it was yeah. in the 90s, it looked like there was some progress. And Clinton, uh, in the last year, I think he had some freedom in his last year, and they were really making some progress. And then, then you know, Sharon and the right wing came in Israel around 2000, and it's been downhill ever since, and just a worsening spiral of violence and, uh, you know, I mean, terrorism by the Israelis. Uh, uh, and it's, you know, it's it's creating a, just a nightmare and escalating, uh, uh, you know, pattern of violence that yeah has no end in sight when the as you say the leadership has no interest in negotiation and, and views the palestinians in a subhuman way and is just overtly violent and, and aggressive uh it's it's yeah it's a very sorry situation what do you think this means uh for israel in the coming year and before you answer I, i'll tell you you know not not having not having been an Israel expert in my career, I've sort of watched it from afar. I just sort of subscribe to 
to that generic American policy of a two-state solution. Having been here, I realized that there is no such thing as a two-state solution. That's just a fantasy of the American government. There is no such thing. Do you think there is any solution? Anything at all that would include Palestinians and give them the same rights that Israelis have? Uh, I mean, I'd be hopeful. You know, there have you know been uh, progress in the past, whether in a two-state solution or you know binational state, where the Palestinians would have more rights, you know, and complete rights. So, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the situation is bad now. I mean, I, I think if more tolerant attitude uh, took root uh, among Israelis, uh, then you know something could be could be achieved. But the way it is now, yeah, you know, with with the mentality of these right wing uh, groups that are uh, have all the power, as you say, uh, there doesn't seem to be any you know positive prospects on the horizon. And and the U.S. just keeps you know they keep giving built more and more money. I mean you know the Biden administration has kind of institutionalized the, the 3.8 billion per year. In, in military equipment that uh, uh, the U.S. is providing and just intensifying, uh, you know, security cooperation or what they call security cooperation. So, I mean, with with endless U.S. support, it's like what we're discussing in Ukraine. They feel further emboldened to carry out designs for greater Israel and to continue, you know, continue to expand. They don't feel any need to negotiate that they're in a great position of strength. So, I mean, we have to look at U.S. policy and how they contribute to this catastrophe, and they don't place any pressure really on the Israelis to tone it down or, or to try and you know, generally seek some kind of rapprochement. So the U.S. bears lar- a large share of the blame. And that reminds me of a book you know, years ago written by Noam Chomsky, The Faithful Triangle, the U.S., and he really looked carefully at, at the U.S. role in exacerbating the uh, crisis and, and preventing a solution to the situation there, which I think there is a solution potentially. What are you working on at uh, Covert Action Magazine, Jeremy? What issues are you you looking at right now? Well, we just published an expose today about how uh, Nixon and Lyndon Johnson were involved in a massive gold theft. Uh, and that, yeah, in an uh, army range in New Mexico. And it was based on a series of books written by an author uh, named John Clarence, who researched this for a long time and uncovered a lot and, and raises questions if, if the CIA was using that gold stash as a way to fund some of its black operations. So, uh, so that's one article. Yeah, we uh, our specialty is trying to expose you know covert operation and corruption. Uh, uh, so that's one recent article. Uh, and yeah, next week we'll have a few articles for you know uh, election week special. Uh, I'm looking critically at, at one race in New York where uh, the candidate has received funding from intelligence agency. Uh, well, uh, I, I can't remember the exact detail, but he. Yeah, I think he's received funding from groups that were anti-union, and uh, he has connection with the intelligence agencies. This is a candidate in New York, John Ryan. So, and then we have Biden uh, midterm report uh, report card on his foreign policy, which has been, we've been discussing on the show. He has a horrible foreign policy by the Biden administration, escalating wars with Russia 
and confrontation with Russia and China at the same time and passing record military budgets and really raising the threat of nuclear war. So this, I think, has been a disastrous administration, even more than Trump, uh, who is, I think, a disaster in his own right, especially in the domestic area, but also foreign policy. But, but Biden is just taking this to a new level uh, of threat and danger for the world by uh, sparking, again, a potential conflict with Russia and China at the same time. So we're really in, in madness right now, and we need uh, progressive forces to, to challenge the powers that be. It's a crazy time. Jeremy Kuzmarov, thanks for joining us. Jeremy is the managing editor of Covert Action magazine. He's the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan was shot and wounded today during a rally for his PTI party in the eastern Pakistani city of Gujranwala. Khan was reportedly struck in the shin or the foot and was quickly evacuated to a hospital in Lahore where he's in stable condition. Four other people were wounded in the same attack. Video footage from the scene shows Khan and his supporters riding on top of a shipping container towed by a truck before a burst of gunfire is heard. Khan is then seen ducking as those around him try to cover him. Police released a video confession of a man they arrested who they say had attempted to kill the former prime minister. It is unclear under what conditions the interview was carried out, but in it, the man is asked by police why he opened fire, and he replies, quote, he was misguiding the people. I wanted to kill him. I tried to kill him, unquote. Khan had been protesting for snap elections to be held this year. He was forced out of office in April. Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif, in the meantime, condemned the attack on Khan and said that elections would be held next year as scheduled. We are very happy to be joined for the first time by Austria's former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Karen Niesel. Your Excellency, thanks so much for joining us. You're most welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. You are a longtime observer of the Middle East and South Asia. Tell us what you think about the current political situation in Pakistan. Imran Khan was ousted in April. He maintains that his ouster was illegal and has demanded new elections. He was in central Pakistan today to rally for that cause and was then wounded in this assassination attempt. It's sad to say, but political assassinations and political violence are actually quite common in Pakistan. Should we be surprised, do you think, by this attempt on Imran Khan's life? No, you're fully right by referring uh, to the sad fact that it's not for the first time that a political leader has fallen victim to physical uh, violence, aggression. Uh, in December 2007, uh, we remember it was a kind of similar situation. Uh, Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto was assassinated. Uh, it was also during a rally. 
And apparently, um, opposition leader uh, Emran Khan survived only thanks to the fact that there was apparently a very courageous and spontaneous action by those uh, uh, joining him. Uh, not bodyguards, but uh, people who uh, who are strong followers of, of his party. So uh, it's I, I would say that this event, uh, given the fact that he has most probably survived, uh, will only uh, push him further into being uh, not only now an opposition leader, but uh, also something like a living martyr. Right. Imran Khan was the world's greatest cricket player, and he used his fame and his wealth uh, to make it to the top of Pakistan's political establishment. He began by using his own money to build hospitals, especially children's hospitals, but over the years, voters began to sour on him, and he was finally ousted. Pakistan's politics are notoriously fickle. What do you think this shooting does for his political future now? Do you think that this is going to make him a more sympathetic character? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, I've, I've been just following, in order to prepare uh, for our conversation, some uh, uh, some aspects of the English-speaking social media in, in Pakistan and the Pakistan community outside and in, in, in the large Pakistan diaspora, especially in the United Kingdom. And uh, the bottom line uh, in my reading is, uh, uh, well, he, he is now... Um, advanced as a leader i mean it was a very courageous act to uh, to do this march and uh, to reassemble his uh, followers and given that he was now physically aggressed uh, and he survives it if there are early elections as demanded maybe there will be a larger demand uh, also within parliament uh, that could only boost him and, and maybe advance his uh, chances also what I've just been reading by while uh, this afternoon now is uh, there have been apparently uh, some first attacks against military installation. Tanks were vandalized. So uh, oh. while Imran Khan is in hospital, I, I think certain things are happening in the country. Good grief. Khan is now 70 years old. The generation of Pakistani leaders that he initially imposed is largely gone. As you mentioned, Benazir Bhutto is dead. She was assassinated. General Pervez Musharraf is in exile in Dubai. Nawaz Sharif uh, lives in exile. He's the current prime minister's brother. Is there still room for Imran Khan in Pakistani politics? If so, in what capacity could you see him becoming prime minister again? Yes, as a far distant observer, and I'm, I'm certainly not uh, a top expert on, on, on Pakistani politics. I don't speak Urdu, unfortunately. I, I only speak on Pashto, I only speak Arabic, but I'm somehow following the events, and I've always been following with, with respect and attention the, the, the course, the curriculum of uh, former Prime Minister Khan. Uh, I always say, let me let me refer to this little anecdote I use in my courses on uh, history. Never underestimate men below the age of 79, because when I take the example of Ayatollah Khomeini, he was 79 when he started his Islamic revolution in Iran, uh, which has shaped history ever since. So... Uh, 
um, Mr. Khan is only 70. He, I mean, apart from the fact that he was shot now uh, in his leg, he, he looks uh, fairly healthy and in, in, in good spirits. Uh, he's uh, he, he is a charismatic leader, so I think that uh, um, he still has chances to re-enter political life. And uh, as we say, sometimes 50 is the 30 of yesterday and 60 the 40, so 70 is the 50 of yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Finally, I want to ask you about German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Uh, he's going to travel to China tomorrow, and this will be the first state visit since the re-election of Xi Jinping and the first visit of a Western leader to China since the beginning of the COVID epidemic. But Scholz is already being criticized in Germany, in the European Union, and in NATO. It's said that he will be unable, unable to deliver a unified message to the Chinese on where Germany and the West stand on China and on the war in Ukraine. Schultz is also being criticized for bringing a delegation of business leaders with him rather than to have surrounded himself with diplomats. You were a critic of Angela Merkel in the past. What do you think about Schultz and what do you think about this trip to China? Mm. Well, Chancellor Olaf Scholz is is in a dilemma, really. I mean, he's, he's not to be envied in, in, in many regards, but uh, it's also a self-inflicted quagmire he's through. Uh, when it comes now to this journey to China, um, I mean, every German chancellor has to visit China once in a while, given that the German economy, especially the automotive uh, industry, wouldn't exist without the Chinese market. Uh, I wrote a book on um, the automobile industry in transition two years ago, and I came across very interesting figures which are telling. Uh, when you take Volkswagen, uh, the, the second largest automobile company worldwide, 60% of their sales are done in China, and 40% of the overall German automotive industry is happening in China. So uh, the German backbone of the German industry, the automobile sector, simply wouldn't exist without China. So every German chancellor, whether it was Gerhard Schröder, whether it was Angela Merkel, or now Olaf Scholz, every one of them is also a car chancellor, as they sometimes say in German, an auto chancellor, you know, so it's not only a chancellor of, the, of Germany, but he's really the, the, the one who, who represents abroad and, and who is also on business trips for the German automotive industry, and that's what China is about for, for, for Germany. So um, it's definitely a visit uh, with a lot of German uh, industrial uh, items on the agenda, and this, of of course, I can understand this uh, is monitored and uh, by by the rest of the European Union. And if I'm not mistaken, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, will follow him suit one of these days. So uh, once again, we can see that, uh, that, that there is a kind of uh, well, certain lines to take. You can uh, repeat certain positioning on certain geopolitical topics, but. Uh, in the end, uh, each head of state government uh, uh, will follow its own national agenda, its own industrial national agenda, and there are deep rifts between the Germans and the French on that. So um, there might be some dissenting voices uh, within Brussels, uh, within the European Union by and large, but Mr. Scholz simply has to go to China and he, he will try to 
uh, to advance uh, German uh, industrial interests. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. Uh, putting China into, well, uh, a kind of, uh, it's, it's not yet a sanctioning, but it's a kind of de, de, de facto boycott uh, when it comes to chip industry. So uh, we will see uh, how far Mr. Scholz can, can move and what much the maneuver he will finally have uh, between uh, Brussels and Washington. That was the voice of the former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Austria, Karen Niesel. Thank you much, so much for joining us. You're listening to uh, to Political Misfits. Do we need to take a break, do you think, uh, We're going to uh, have to Michelle? take a break in 10 minutes, John, but don't yeah. worry. I have so some things to tell you about. Let me, yes, let me tell you one thing. Uh, to come back to the United States for a moment and uh, some domestic concerns and domestic economic concerns. Let me tell you about a headline that made me yell out loud this morning when I read it. This is from the New York Times. Uh, The Times asks us, mortgage rates too high? Blame the Fed, Wall Street, and your neighbor. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I know. I used so many swear words. I can't even I can't say an expression on the air uh, that would, you know, uh, convey my anger at this. It's such an outrage. I mean, I guess that doesn't make any sense. Well, here uh, they are basically saying, uh, I mean, mortgage rates are too high because of, uh, you know, because of actions by the Federal Reserve, because of the way that uh, banks decide to package and sell on debt, uh, which, you know, creates a sort of increasingly uh, speculative sort of chain of, of buying and selling uh, your neighbor. Your neighbor, I guess, comes in for blame because um of changes in consumer behavior in response to moves by the Fed. So uh, the telling paragraph here is that the New York Times tells us analysts say the average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage, which crossed the 7% threshold recently, could be as much as a full percentage point lower if investors, homeowners, and prospective buyers hadn't been shifting their behavior so sharply in reaction to the Fed's moves. One, isn't that what the Fed wants people to do? Exactly. Raising interest rates to make nobody do anything. They keep raising rates because people, unfortunately for them, keep having jobs and having money to spend. And they're going to keep raising rates until that changes. And this is just it exemplifies for me. Uh, something that is extremely wrong with the economic and political analysis that's offered so often by these mainstream organs. It, it, this is really putting the same amount of blame on the actions of the Federal Reserve, uh, the appetites and immorality of Wall Street and your neighbor who, unless your neighbor is a huge pension fund that has bought up an entire block, which is something that's increasingly likely these days and is, of course, facilitated by Wall Street, your neighbor is just somebody who's trying to make the best financial decision for their family. Exactly. And the idea that you can e- equally weight all of these people is disgusting. It also, honestly, it was listening to a discussion of political violence in in the U.S. the other day and and this sort of discussion of why the U.S. is a very violent society, right? We have huge amounts of gun violence. We uh, have huge amounts of violence in our entertainment. We are we're a violent society. And yet we have relatively little political violence. 
right? And there seems to be a bit of an uptick. But as we were just talking about earlier this week, it's nowhere near the levels of even the 1970s. Um, and I think this isn't necessarily unrelated to that phenomena, because can you really do anything to affect Wall Street as an individual, yeah. right? If you Absolutely are an individual not. who's a little bit nuts and a lot angry, can you do anything to affect the Federal Reserve? No, no. But you sure Not can possible. take that anger and direct it toward your neighbor. And here is the New York Times saying, yeah, that's appropriate. They they have wow. also had a hand in in your misery and they're an easier target. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, uh, there are a couple of degrees to this, but it creates an environment where, you know, yeah, your neighbor's responsible for uh, mortgage rates being seven points because they are reacting to the Federal Reserve, which is what the Federal Reserve wants to happen anyway. It made mm -hmm. me very angry, as <laughs> you can probably tell. I'm with you. Yeah, thank I'm you. I'm with you. I think that's utterly inappropriate. It's bad journalism. It is. You it's know? terrible. And, you know, I also realized in my whole sort of diatribe about about Joe Biden's speech, I couldn't I, I found I, I couldn't figure out exactly what I was trying to to get across. And I've I've finally gotten to it. But the speech, if you don't already believe Democrats own reality, there is nothing compelling about this message about preserving democracy. Right. So if you're not already on board with this whole yes. like blame Wall Street, the Fed and your neighbor, if you're not already. So who is it for? It's not for anybody. Right. This isn't convincing swing voters. Uh, I just wanted to I felt like uh, there was a lot of language to get across an idea that was pretty simple and I hadn't hadn't quite managed to do it. You know, the, the comment that your friend made. I mm -hmm. think uh, is is really appropriate. Like it's like they don't even want to win. Yeah. It why, really is. why? How can we be four days before a midterm election and you announce you, the president, announce a major speech mm -hmm. and you aim that speech only at your base? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Directly, directly at your base who are saying the same things, basically, is, you know, it's it's not only Republicans saying we're worried about our jobs. We're worried about this and that, you know, it's voters across the board. Yeah. 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 Uh, there is there is also uh, some more news about uh, the Uvalde school shooting. And, you know, at this point, like, I don't want to wallow in misery. Right. But uh Yesterday, there were uh, there was a big release of uh, additional 911 calls that were made from inside the school. Uh, but the real news, yes. I think, is and this comes from this reporting from the Austin New Statesman, that four victims were still alive when um, authorities finally were able to enter classrooms on May 24th. And so what is being investigated now, uh, there, there's a doctor who's leading a team to study whether those victims could have survived had there not been such a delay between um, the, you know, the report of that emergency and the police finally breaching the classroom where the shooter was. Uh, because apparently there were there were ambulances on hand you know, almost immediately, like the, the, the shooter was spotted as he was going into the school within minutes. Uh, there were a whole bunch of different medical emergency responders and law enforcement emergency responders on the scene. And of course, we all know uh, how the police were so delayed in getting into that classroom. And so now uh, the question is going to be, did did that delay actually cost the lives of teachers and children? Right.
Which you is, know, maybe we're going to be pleasantly surprised that it's not just going to be a handful of cops losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody's going to be prosecuted. Hmm. Yeah. I for, want for negligence, right? For, for dereliction yeah, of duty or something exactly. like that? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll see. I, I know. It's a, it's a lot to, it's a, it's a lot to reckon with. Um, the other story I saw, speaking of Wall Street, um, but there's a story in the Wall Street Journal that we won't be able to talk about today, but that I hope to get into next week. And this is about uh, a big Wall Street firm buying 1.7 million acres of eastern hardwood forests uh, to be able to sell them as carbon offsets. Right. So not sell the forests themselves. Right. But these are hardwood forests that are um, that soak up carbon. And if this sort of carbon offset market actually, you know, becomes a a big thing, they are anticipating that they'll be able to, you know, sell their carbon sucking power to corporations that want to be able to emit um, carbon. I think that there are people who we will be excited about this. I think we should be really concerned uh, about, you know, T. Rowe Price and these corporate debt investors buying forest land. In, you, know, you know, this sounds very, very much like John Kerry's idea in 2011 to sell um, carbon offsets. Yeah. Con- Congress didn't like it at the time, and it doesn't sound any better a decade later. Well, they're still working on it, and they've made a they've made a bet of more than a billion dollars. So we'll see who's right. We're oh, going to take a quick yeah. break here on Political Misfits. We're going to come back and talk more midterms. We're going to talk about this peace deal in Ethiopia, and we'll talk about the world once again rebuking the United States for its Cuba embargo. All that coming up here on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The midterm elections are taking place on Tuesday, and the country's most prominent political analysts, including 538.com, The Cook Political Report, and Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball from the University of Virginia, are all predicting that the Republicans will take both the House and the Senate. Looking state by state and factoring in redistricting and gerrymandering, the Democrats have no hope of holding the House. In fact, previously safe Democratic seats in Nevada, Pennsylvania, and even Rhode Island look like they'll fall to the Republicans. The real races, though, are for the Senate and a handful of governorships. We're joined by Ray Baker. He's a political scientist, analyst, and a professor at Towson University. Ray, welcome back. Thank you guys for having me. Oh, we're so glad to have you, Ray. This is going to be fun. I was looking at some House polls from Nevada this morning, and I was surprised to see three out of five. There are five congressional districts there. Three Democratic incumbents are behind their Republican challengers by more than 10 percentage points. Democrats are poised to lose a seat in Rhode Island. Of all places, they could lose two seats in Pennsylvania. Texas is a big problem. They could lose two or three seats there. Do you attribute this to redistricting and gerrymandering? Is it the economy or is this just a typical midterm election? Is there an option for this to be none of the above? What I think we <laughs> might want to 
consider is that, uh, and, and, and I'm being a bit facetious and flippant when I say none of the above. I think you guys do a very good job of acknowledging and calling out gerrymandering and redistricting because that's what we've seen at play in places like Nevada, for example, where Congressman Steve Horsford has lost a reelection at one point in 2014, I believe, but came back in one in 2018 and again in 2020. Now, Congressman Horsford also has some questionable personal experiences that may complicate the way voters want to receive him. But we cannot deny that state legislatures across the United States have been interested in determining that if they cannot, they being the Republicans, cannot make a compelling case policy-wise for voters to vote for them, then they will organize the electorate in a way in which those voters will then vote for them. Additionally, we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge the ongoing culture war in our society right now. The main emphasis of the culture war is who gets to participate in our democracy and what are the terms of their participation? So many Americans have communicated in a number of ways, not least of which is the 2020 election controversy to be polite, denial and refusal to acknowledge the truth to be pretty straightforward. But so many Americans have used that to communicate they distrust that the people who they share a democracy with would vote for the things that they disagree with. And thus, those people must not be actual members of the electorate worthy of counting their votes. And if that means we have to send people to the state legislature who will disqualify those voters or who will make it even more difficult for those voters to participate, then that is what we will do. And so whether we're talking about those who are now comfortable being honest about what we used to call at the very least impolite and politically incorrect politics, or whether we're talking about those who have been boxed out of the electorate to participate, or we're talking about those who frankly are willing to hold their nose for the most inhumane qualities of policy in order to get the material benefits that they want. That's why we're seeing this groundswell where 538 is saying that four out of five models predict that the Republicans take the House again. Yep. Yep. Let's talk about some of these Senate races. Uh, the Democrats put up strong challengers against Republican incumbents in Florida and North Carolina, and the Democrats endorsed the independent Evan McMullen in Utah, but it looks like none of them are going to make it. On the other side, what appeared to be strong candidates in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Wisconsin are flailing around in the final days, and Democratic incumbents in Georgia, New Hampshire, Arizona, Nevada are all in serious trouble. Give us your thoughts on these races. Are these all individual elections? He dropped, but we're going to have to reconnect with him, mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about these Senate races. Mm -hmm. But I'll give you my view in the meantime. I'm not sure I trust these numbers that we're seeing from 538.com, mm -hmm. political report and such. Um, I think that uh, that these are individual races rather than a national trend, at least in the Senate. I think that it's true that Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada is in serious trouble. I think she'll probably lose. I still think that John Fetterman is going to win. Uh, you look at the polls, the post-debate polls, where um, people were questioned, voters in Pennsylvania were questioned about whether or not they changed their mind based on his performance at the debate. 
And the vast majority said no. Mm-hmm. They said no. In fact, many people, the, fo- the farther left you go in the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania, the more people liked him, respected him because he went forward knowing that he was going to fall apart in that debate. There was nothing he could do to save himself, but he did it anyway. And and they say that was the right thing to do. So I, I'm not sure, you know, I, Michelle, I looked at these numbers again on 538.com for a long time. It was 70, 30, a 70, 30 chance that the Democrats were going to keep the Senate. Now it's 55, 45 Republicans. Yeah. I'm just not sure that I believe that because if Masto loses and Fetterman wins and then all of the other races fall the way the polls show them falling, Mm -hmm. that that's still a 50, 50 Senate. I honestly also don't know that we have yet you know, fixed polling in the U.S., right? So it could be that all of these are not wildly off, but off enough to make a a difference in the result if we're talking about if we're talking about close races. You know, I I think we we have not figured out, you know, post 2016 um, how to how to get polls to actually represent what people intend to do when they go into the the voting booth. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. There is, there is, um, how should I, how should I say this? There's a serious problem in polling methodologies that polling companies have not been able to figure out since the advent and widespread use of the cell phone, mm-hmm. right? They've just never been able to, to figure out how to, how to poll people who don't have a landline. I don't have a landline. And no pollster has ever called me on my cell phone, which is fine. I don't care. But uh, they they just haven't been able to figure out how to get around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me let me say another thing about these Senate races, too. Uh, you look at Arizona, for example. Uh, for all of the, the hoopla, I think that Mark Kelly's going to win. I think Fetterman's going to win. I think that Ron Johnson, as awful as he is in Wisconsin, is going to win. Mm-hmm. Marco Rubio is going to win. Uh, uh, Beasley's going to lose in in North Carolina. So, what we end up having is is just the status quo. The Democrats lose that seat in Nevada. The Democrats win the seat in Pennsylvania. It's a fifty fifty Senate with Kamala Harris breaking the tie, which reportedly she hates doing. <laughs> She's already set a record for the most tiebreakers in the Why history. Why would she hate I, doing that? You know Wouldn't what? I excited. Was- Wouldn't you think, great, hey, great, we get to, you know, by the slimmest of margins, we get to enact our agenda. Why would you hate doing something like no. that? She said she hates it because she wants to be doing policy. She wants to be uh, traveling. She wants to be president. Mm. And she can't be president if she's sitting in Washington every day just breaking ties. I don't think she's going to be president anyway. I don't think she yeah. could survive even the Iowa caucus. No. No, I don't think I, so. John, but, we have our guest back. Oh, great. Okay, well, let's talk about some of these gubernatorial races. Um, Pennsylvania seems to be the only good news for Democrats, but that's only because the Republicans nominated a lunatic. But Republicans nominated a lunatic in Arizona, too, and it looks like she's going to win. I can see a scenario where the Democratic senator, Mark Kelly, holds on to his Senate seat, but the Republican, Carrie Lake, wins the governor's race. What in the world do you think is going on in 
Arizona among the electorate there that would even make this possible. Oh, have we lost him again? I guess so. Or he's muted, perhaps. Ray, you there? No. Okay. Well, that was one question. What I was going to ask him as a follow-up was about these other gubernatorial races. You know, Beto O'Rourke has been running a spirited campaign in Texas, and he doesn't have a prayer. Yeah, I know. Beto just, I don't, yeah, Beto doesn't. Not a prayer. Mm -mm. Democrats have been saying for 20 years that Texas is turning purple. Oh, no, it's not. It's still ruby red. But in Maryland, which has had a Republican governor for the last eight years and Larry Hogan, is going to elect a Democratic governor by like 67 to 33. But that's because Larry Hogan is the Democrat darling, right? He's the he's the Republican governor that's beloved by Democrats. Yeah. John, Larry Hogan. Oh, perhaps we've lost both. Maybe we've lost Ray and John, which would be uh, pretty funny if that's the case. Yeah, I don't know if you can put, uh, you know, Larry Hogan has a, has a big asterisk when you are talking about uh, Republicans. I do not know if we are going to, what we are going to see in, in Arizona. I you guys think, there? Yeah, we're here. Hi, John. Wow, I think we're having... I think we're having internet issues in this studio, actually. I can hear you, John, but I suddenly am uh, told that my uh, um, computer is disconnected from the internet, which is not an easy way to work. Let's take a quick break and see if we can settle these uh, technical issues and come back and see uh, what is in future uh, for the Biden administration if Republicans do take control of Congress and decide that they want to use their power to investigate the president's family, to investigate the COVID response, to do anything but pass meaningful policy. We'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment, but sometimes with some technical difficulties. Uh, We are back. We are about to get into a conversation about what exactly is in this peace deal uh, for Ethiopia. But I see John has some breaking news from Israel. John, the expected has happened, right? The caretaker prime minister has conceded And so Benjamin Netanyahu will be the prime minister. Yeah. And John, let me ask you your your last question here for our guest who we're just going to have to reconnect with uh, next week. What do you think happens if Republicans win, uh, if they win the House and if they win the Senate? Does does Joe Biden do anything at all? No, I think it's I think his policy agenda would be dead. Mm -hmm. And you know what? We've had divided government many, many, many times over the course of our history. Where where it's dangerous in the in the present circumstance is we know for a fact what happens when when uh, Mitch McConnell has a majority in the Senate and Joe Biden's judicial appointees will grind to a halt. There's appointments will grind to a halt and he will just emasculate this president. Nothing, nothing will get done. Yeah. Uh, here's something I wonder. 
Um, I think, you know, sure, the Republicans will be able to play with this idea of, you know, investigating Hunter Biden, investigating Burisma, whatever. Democrats are not going to be on board with an, an iota of that, I wouldn't think. There's also Ron Paul has been talking about investigating the response to the covid pandemic. Right. And I wonder if that's an area I mean, I guess the answer is probably no. As I ask the question, I answer it myself. But I, I was wondering if that could be an area where, um, you know, maybe there there would be a little bit of bipartisan support just because it has been so weird. Right. I mean, yeah. one of the uh, well, one I, of the times that progressives attempted to assert their um, their power in Congress was to get more funding for, uh, you know, for covid testing treatment, et cetera, uh, months ago now, at the er, early in the year, um, they attempted to exert their will. They got it. I think, what was it? They got it pulled out. They wanted to vote on a standalone package because the amount that was being offered in a, uh, a sort of uh, conglomerate bill wasn't what they wanted. And then they were actually never able to get any funding passed at all, from what I remember. Yeah. And so you have a, a sort of progressive disgruntlement for wrapping things up too early. And then, of course, you have this very strange situation in which people are still getting sick, but the pandemic is over. And just today we were going to get a, a Moderna earnings call to see how much they're making on, uh, you know, still promoting these boosters that we're still told we should get, but that the government is going to have no interest in funding. So I feel like, I mean, I, I wouldn't really expect this uh, progressive caucus or any of those members to to uh, get on board with an investigation like this. But I think there's more chance of that than with anything related to Joe Biden's family. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think the Democrats are going to fight investigations of Joe Biden's family uh, like the Republicans have fought investigations into the January 6th uh, riot. Uh, we're going to see heavily divided government. But, you know, you may have a point here that there are Democrats on the left who do want to go after Dr. Fauci. Now, he's retiring next month. And so it's unclear to me what they could do to a to a private citizen. You know, there was talk about impeaching him, but that won't be possible because he won't be in office anymore. So I'm not really sure what it is they could do. Yeah. Yeah. Other right, than embarrass him. Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. Uh, but, you know, sometimes, I mean, again, as you say, they're not the Republicans are also not campaigning on any kind of um, program. So uh, embarrass it. You know, maybe what they're being put into office to do is embarrass the, the president and embarrass his party. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that very well could be it. Let's get out of the gutter of domestic politics and, and talk about something uh, very hopeful and significant. And that is this peace deal struck by the Ethiopian government and the TPLF. I will say that I, I certainly did not expect negotiations in South Africa to end with an agreement on the permanent cessation of hostilities between these two uh, armed forces, certainly not so quickly. And what I am seeing on one hand is a lot of relief and on the other, a lot of of suspicion about how fully this plan will be implemented. And so joining us to talk about what's in the plan, uh, what people are fearful of, and, and what we can expect is Nabiu Asfa. He's co-founder of the Ethiopian American Development Council. Nabiu, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michelle and, and John. I'm glad to be here. Can you start by just telling us what is in this uh, this agreement? 
Yeah, absolutely. First, um, this is a major breakthrough, and I, I just want to say thank you for you guys for covering it, uh, because the mainstream media has been absolutely quiet about this, even though they've been talking about the war for two years. So, um, yesterday, the government of Ethiopia and the Tigray People Liberation Front, or the TPLF rebels, really surprised the world uh, by agreeing to a 12-point um uh, uh, really a joint statement for ending the two-year-old uh, conflict in, in northern Ethiopia. And um, the agreement, um, from what we've seen so far, uh, reassures the sovereignty, territorial integrity of Ethiopia, uh, upholding constitutional order um, in Tigray, and, and significant concessions from the TPLF uh, rebels, including the TPLF agreeing to demobilize their force and be disarmed. Um, and, and basically, we'll hand over territories they occupy to the federal government of Ethiopia. Um, and in exchange, the government of Ethiopia has agreed to give uh, TPLF combatant amnesty, and reintegrate the combatants um, after a complete disarmament and demobilization into society within the next 30 days is uh, uh, when the disarmament will occur. Um, it's a serious uh, quid pro quo uh, as far as concerning what the Ethiopian state had wanted. Um, and, and, you know, the prime minister yesterday said that Ethiopia has gotten 100 percent of what it wanted. Um, end of uh, hostilities, silencing of the guns, um, and reintegration of Tigray mm-hmm. back into um, Ethiopia, and, and basically the TPLF ceasing to exist as a military force. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like a, a victory for the Ethiopian government. Uh, and I wonder if we should have expected this. Because, you know, we understood that the TPLF was losing ground militarily. Uh, but I wonder if, you know, the, the difficulty in getting clear information on the war kind of prevented uh, analysts from understanding just how backed into a corner the TPLF was. Because, you know, they, they had been really, you know, obviously they took up arms against the government. Uh, they were initially reluctant to, uh, to you know, that this these negotiations were announced uh, a week before they actually started because the TPLF sort of got cold feet about about the structure and everything. And so, you know, I, I think people from the information that I had, I, I wouldn't have expected this. And I wonder if um, this has to do with the, the position the TPLF found itself in militarily. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Now, you know, for two years, the TPLF has been backed uh, by by Western governments uh, led by the United States, um, and they've been enabled um, to do what they've been doing, including the media kind of taking their side. Um, and, and that is what has really prolonged the war for this long. But as you know, there's been a massive resistance from the Ethiopian people, a pan-African movement called No More, uh, you know, saying no more intervention. And and what we had witnessed is uh, a humanitarian imperialism where, uh, you know, humanitarian issue was being weaponized for this, uh, you know, unwelcome intrusion into African affairs. And that strong resistance, you know, in fact, the, the Saturday before, last this past Saturday, there was over a million people that protested in, in multiple cities in Ethiopia saying, enough is enough, leave us alone, let us solve our own problem. Um, and, and this uh, negotiation or peace talks was completely facilitated 
by the African Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with this, uh, there was a massive military victory um, on the Ethiopian side. In fact, the TPLF had lost 98% of the territories that they held. Um, and, and they were basically in, left to one city, and that was the capital of Tigray were surrounded, and, and really, um, it really is the, the military victory that brought this out. And I think their their backers also kind of gave up, knowing that the TPLF uh, army has fallen apart. And, and from what we witnessed in the liberated part of Tigray, the people were welcoming the Ethiopian forces. Uh, even though the media was telling us the Ethiopian force is going to commit a genocide. Yeah. You know, it was a contrast with people celebrating and welcoming the forces. So I think all this kind of put the TPLF and checkmate saying that they really have no other option but to um, negotiate their surrender and get the best out of uh, the negotiation, which in their case is amnesty. I mean, yeah, so it's, it sounds like really this was a, a victory on the battlefield. Do, do you credit anybody else with this with this breakthrough? The African Union, uh, I don't know, and negotiators on either side? A hundred percent. The African Union uh, has has helped and been fair. Um, and, and really, to be honest, on the battlefield, uh, there's African countries that helped Ethiopia, particularly Eritrea, it's a neighboring country that sees the TPLF as a common threat, a regional threat. Um, so that that has helped. Um, there's other countries that have helped Ethiopia uh, from the United Arab Emirates to Turkey uh, to China that uh, when Ethiopia was put on an arms embargo from the United States, that this country helped Ethiopia uh, defend itself. And then also there was over 17 United Nations Security Council meetings led by the United States to sanction Ethiopia. Uh, and every single one of those attempts were uh, vetoed by Russia and China. So those countries have done uh, a great deal of favor in protecting Ethiopia because the playbook that was being used on Ethiopia this time was the same playbook that was used on Libya and Syria. So, you know, the outcome could have been completely different in this important nation in a very strategic area and a nation of 120 million people that's larger than Libya, Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan combined. So, um, you know, really, um, this is just really so monumental that this poor nation triumphed, this this global conspiracy to take it down. so it's a victory uh, for the Ethiopian people uh, and for Africans from Pan-Africans and really the whole global South that when you come together and unite and resist that there is hope um, to overcome oppression and to overcome foreign interference that, that uh, you know, uh, would have subjugated uh, the people and its resources. I also want to ask about some of the suspicion that people have about how how this will be implemented. Uh, I wonder if you think people are right to be a little bit reserved in their um, jubilation and what you think will be some key first signs that things are either going in the right direction or going in the wrong direction when it comes to actually implementing this deal. Yeah, people, I mean, we've seen enough to be suspicious of, uh, you know, what has been happening, including the complete utter lies that have been told on mass media over the past two years. We know it because uh, we have families there, we hear it, we live and breathe it, so we know the truth. And 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 the the, the, the 
sophistication of the global network that has created this um, narrative about this Tigray rebels uh, being some kind of noble rebels, and as if there's some kind of a humanitarian crisis or genocide. You know, this this narrative is still out there uh, in the masses, and, and, and you know, especially um, the good American people that may not otherwise hear anything but the mainstream media, there is still room um, to for for uh, other kinds of intervention to sabotage this peace deal, to give life to the TPLF, or also, um, you know, there's other proxies in the area that could be brought out. Um, so it, it, there's definitely risks, um, and and uh, um, that's why that that you know people need to stay vigilant, and and the narrative, and and also. And the implementation process, it's very important that the people involved are Africans and only African Union. For example, at this facilitation and the mediation that lasted for 12 days, the United States forced its way in as, a, as an observer. Right um, against the wish of Ethiopia, um, and and uh, um, however, in the joint statement that was released, um, they were not acknowledged or or they were not even thanked for being part of it. That speaks a lot, right? So um, we just need to make sure that this interference, this is uh, uh, um, is left with Africans. Uh, we have, uh, you know, our cultures, this, the people facilitating the, uh, our elders uh, using, you know, cultural ways of uh, bringing people together. So um, that's, that's the risk is um, the continued, um, you know, back-end intervention that may sabotage this. I have another question for you on uh, along the lines of how this war is being presented. Uh, NPR this morning, had a little discussion of the peace agreement and their description of how the war began was interesting. Uh, and NPR's uh, gloss of the start of the conflict was that it started when uh, the Ethiopian government decided to pause elections during the COVID-19 pandemic and Tigray went again, went ahead and held elections. That was it. That was their explanation for how the war started, uh, which, of course, really strongly implies that the Ethiopian federal government was attempting to, uh, you know, subvert democracy. And uh, the TPLF or Tigray decided to go ahead and, you know, allow their people to participate in democracy. I wonder if, uh, you know, if you have any thoughts on that presentation of, of the beginning of the conflict and what you think, if anything, should have been added there. Added, I mean, that's a fairy tale that they're really saying. And, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, our community has been so disappointed by NPR, which I used to believe was a progressive, uh, objective news source, but they've been completely wrong on Ethiopia. The war did not start over an election. The war started because Western-backed TPLF, uh, that group that was removed from power. Remember, the TPLF ruled Ethiopia for 27 years. They were removed by a popular protest, massive protest across Ethiopia that people removed them from power. Then they retreated to their native area of Tigray from where they launched an armed insurrection to overthrow a democratically elected government. And throughout the two years of the war, they were enabled um, by Western backing that has sanctioned Ethiopia and that has gave them positive press. 
what happened. And they got defeated. Uh, you know, David won over Goliath in this case. But this this notion to uh, uh, to to give an impression to the American people that uh, or, or 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 downplay the TPLF atrocities and and high crimes against the Ethiopian government and the Ethiopian people is just really unfortunate, especially coming from a news source um, like NPR. And that's why um, the, the movement from our community, especially the no more hashtag, no more grassroots movement, has been a response to the the fake news that was spewed uh, over the two years to facilitate a neo-colonial, neo-imperialist agenda of of foreign forces that are meddling in African affairs. Um, And that the common message uh, has been, you know, leave us alone, let Africa handle its own issue. And and we've triumphed uh, because the people voice, and this wasn't just Ethiopians only, Ethiopians, Eritreans, it was a, a pan-African movement that had a lot of help from African-Americans in the U.S. and, and other um, communities around the global South that really stuck together and said, not this time, not in Ethiopia, we're not going to allow this to happen again. And we succeeded. And, and you know, um, and the media is going to continue to tell its lies. But the reality on the ground is that, you know, Ethiopia has prevailed and had overcome what would otherwise have been a situation like Libya or, or Syria. Yeah, it's a, it's a very hopeful moment. It's nice to be able to talk about something uh, positive and to be able to talk about, you know, peace being achieved through negotiations for once. That was Nabiu Asfa. He's co-founder of the Ethiopian American Development Council. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michelle. Have a nice day. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back and talk about Cuba, uh, political violence, and uh, our definitions of that term. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're going to talk a little bit about Cuba. Uh, The UN was voting today on uh, whether to issue a resolution calling for the end of the U.S. embargo on that country, which has lasted more than 60 years. Uh, For 30 years, the resounding answer has been to end the embargo. And we're going to talk about how how the American position on Cuba should uh, inform our understanding of uh, foreign policy across the whole. We'll also be talking about, you know, the the state of the democracy that Joe Biden has been imploring Americans to defend, especially when it comes to um, uh, allowing the uh, full political spectrum to be heard and to be uh, presented to the American people. Joining us for this conversation is Gloria Lariva. She's a longtime Cuban solidarity organizer, and she's a former presidential candidate for the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Gloria, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me on. So I want to start with this vote today. Uh, The outcome was not in question. It hasn't really been in question, I think, for the past 30 years. And uh, the uh, result of the vote to end the embargo was 4-185. 
The U.S. and Israel voted against the resolution and Brazil and Ukraine abstained. And I just wonder, I think this is an obvious question, but what should that tell us? Yes, um, Michelle, it was a resounding vote with 185 countries for Cuba and the usual two, the U.S. and Israel against Cuba. Two countries abstained, Brazil and Ukraine. And I think it's very interesting because Ukraine has abstained for several years, which is, um, I think, because Zelensky's in the U.S. pocket. The U.S. applies pressure to countries every year. They bribe or blackmail countries to say, vote with us. And yet it's only two countries that voted with the U.S., including the U.S., and two that abstained. But Brazil has abstained because of the politics of Bolsonaro. Lula hasn't been inaugurated, so you can bet that next year, if there's a vote, that Brazil will vote for Cuba. So it's amazing. And Colombia used to abstain, but now it has voted for Cuba. So we can safely say that the world stands with Cuba, not only the governments, but the people, including inside the U.S. And polls show that almost 70 percent of the people support the ending of the blockade when they're polled. Unfortunately, the U.N. General Assembly doesn't have the power of enforcement. Still, it's a very important victory for Cuba. Does the U.S. offer, I mean, when this happens, right, yearly, does the U.S. offer any kind of justification for maintaining this embargo, which I'll also point out a Cuban official assessed as uh, resulting in more than $154 billion in, in damages to a country that remains pretty poor as a result of this embargo. Does the U.S. even respond or does it just ignore it? Well, I think it is a pretext, one excuse after another over the 60 years of the U.S. blockade. The U.S. has always had some reason that it won't lift it. Um, The real reason, I'll say, even though it's obvious, is that the U.S. is dead set against Cuba because it is a socialist country and which has had an enormous impact on the world and its struggle for justice and the fact that it has free health care, no landlordism, no evictions, free education through a university. And that's why there's a travel ban for U.S. US people. We're not allowed to go, with some exceptions, to travel to Cuba and see for ourselves. So in the beginning of the revolution, the U.S. said that they imposed a blockade because Cuba was Marxist-Leninist and a danger to democracy. In the 70s and the 80s, the pretext was that Cuba had troops in Angola, which it did, uh, playing a pivotal role in defeating the South African apartheid regime's invasion of Angola and helping bring about the end of apartheid. It also led to Namibia's independence. So the U.S. was on the side of apartheid. Therefore, they had to maintain the blockade. Now the U.S. has added to the blockade by declaring Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism, which is not only false, but a deep insult to a country that has lost more than 3,400 people, largely by U.S.-funded and sponsored terrorism. So it's one demand, in addition to lifting the blockade, that, again, the world is demanding end. 18 former heads of state from Latin America the other day and the Caribbean wrote a letter to Biden saying, Remove that label. It's not true. I mean, I think we mentioned this on the show yesterday. It's not just heads of state, uh, former heads of state in Latin America. It's the members of the U.S. intelligence community 
right, who would be presumed to be the experts on uh, who is a state sponsor of terror or not, they also acknowledge that Cuba is in no way a state sponsor of terror. So, you know, this seems to be, again, if if you've tried something for 60 years and it hasn't achieved the result you want, which is uh, to convince Cubans to uh, have a new form of government, uh, you have to conclude that it is simply punishment. And I think uh, evidence for that is uh, this recent story from the Cayman Compass that the U.S. is not only punishing Cubans, it punishes other people for visiting Cuba and uh, makes ineligible for certain fast track U.S. visa programs anyone who's visited Cuba in the past decade, which, again, is just the country that presents itself as the champion of freedom and democracy in the world, the champion of of people choosing, you know, of self-determination, just sort of bitterly and petulantly punishing a a very small island for for 60 years for opting for a form of government that we disapprove of. Yes. And the thing about this new restriction on people who've traveled to Cuba from any other country that wants to come to the U.S. and will have a hard time getting to the U.S., it's another example of what's called the extraterritoriality of the U.S. blockade, which is highly illegal by international law. Of course, the U.S. doesn't care about international law, but it's it's enforcing its so-called laws against the world. And the other part, too, is the Helms-Burton law passed by Clinton, signed by Clinton, which uh, also said that any country that invests in Cuba can be sued in U.S. court for its wealth, um, if it invests in anything that used to belong to the U.S., which was almost all of Cuba. So when people, if people were to know what the blockade really means, now it's called embargo in official parlance, but really it's a blockade. It's much broader than travel ban, I mean trade ban. If the people of the U.S. knew what it means, they would be decidedly against a blockade and help apply the real pressure to the U.S. government. Yeah, it is just also, I mean, especially recently, uh, you know, the U.S. media has talked about uh, rebukes in the U.N. uh, for, you know, for for what Russia continues to call its uh, special military operation in Ukraine. They had yet another vote on a resolution condemning that and talked about, you know, the numbers of votes for abstentions from uh, this would seem to be a far more black and white rebuke than even that, which, you know, which Russia lost pretty, uh, pretty solidly. And so, again, it, I, I think that this this one position, of course, there are many U.S. policy positions you can you can take to use as a sort of prism through which to view the entire imperial agenda. But this alone, honestly, and the, the response by the by the world to it, it should really I think, uh, underpin any understanding of, of what the U.S.'s goals actually are abroad. Yes. And, you know, I, I think the politics and the votes, the resolutions that take place in the U.N., the U.S. has such overwhelming weight within the Permanent Security Council, five members, its veto, uh, the 12-year blockade that they had on Iraq, killing over a million and a half people, that the other countries, France, Britain, China, wanted to see lifted, but the U.S. veto. I mean, the U.S. weight in the U.N. is so great. Um, I think what's really interesting is the first vote on the U.S. embargo of Cuba, that was 30 years ago in 1992, in November, and that vote was 57 countries, four Cuba, three abstaining, 
No, three against and 79 abstaining. This year we have two abstaining and 185 versus that 57 voting for Cuba. So it shows you that the <clears throat> the impact of Cuba's resistance, how people in the world see Cuba for 30 years, Cuba's doctors helping People in Italy, when they were the epicenter of COVID, Cuban doctors going to Africa to help overcome the Ebola crisis, which was so deadly. And so these countries yesterday and today spoke at the UN just lauding Cuba for what they have done, saying, look what Cuba is. Why is, why is the U.S. doing this? It has no reason except punishment. I also want to talk about uh, the state of American democracy, uh, because Joe Biden gave a speech last night uh, imploring Americans to respect and defend the democracy. Uh, he was saying, of course, that there are dozens of candidates in these midterms who have suggested they won't accept the results of elections they don't win uh, and said, I hope you'll ask a simple question of each candidate you might vote for. Will that person accept the legitimate will of the American people and the people voting in his or her district? And I wanted to ask you, as someone who has uh, campaigned for high office in this democracy, how much you think the candidates who actually make it onto any ballot or even onto a debate stage really represent the will of the American people? Well, no candidate for the Democrats and Republicans, and they are the ones who control the electoral political system. No candidate can reach the nomination unless they have been vetted by the state, by the powers that be from the Pentagon all the way to the major corporations. You are vetted as to whether you will continue to enforce U.S. policy, um, the doctrine that no other country can rival the United States ever since World War II. These are ironclad, and that's why someone so popular as as uh, Bernie Sanders, who could reach tens of thousands in a couple of days, notice, while Biden had a handful of people in the cafe, it's why he was just knocked out, because he represented not such a radical notion, but the ideas of health care and education. And um, that can't happen. So we're talking about a political system in which the fact that Biden spoke last night about the threat to democracy, as they see a democracy, uh, and yes, there is a great problem. There is a great danger, but also within the Supreme Court that just took away women's right to abortion mm -hmm. and voting rights. But anyway, I think that it has created a situation where there's so much misinformation and the power of the politicians to do what they will, to say that they won't even honor an outcome of an election if they don't win. And, and yet I think that the Democrats are responsible too, because the Democrats have not played a role of standing up for people's needs, of saying we will fight. We may not have the absolute majority, but we will fight for the right of a job, of an income. And people are suffering these years. It's creating, I think, a very, very, very problematic situation where the ultra-right is actually perhaps gaining by the failure of both parties and the, the cynicism that people feel is very understandable. Yeah. So, again, it takes the, the people's popular movements to make this change mm -hmm. and not rely on the politicians. Yeah, I mean, there has been a lot of discussion lately about political violence, 
Right. And of course, I, I don't want to see that, that, you know, members of Congress physically attacked in their homes. I don't want to see people challenge fair election results. I don't want to see uh, armed armed people, quote unquote, guarding voting sites, as uh, I think this group in Arizona was just ordered to stop doing. Um, but there is also, I think, in focusing on uh, partisan political violence, we ignore the political violence that is sort of supported and perpetrated by by both aspects, uh, you know, both arms of the U.S. state. You know, I'm thinking, as our producer Ben suggested, thinking about uh, political prisoners in the United States who we pretend don't exist, but absolutely do in the in the figures of Mumia Abu-Jamal or Leonard Peltier, right, in how difficult it is to get the U.S. state to offer these people uh, medical uh, treatment when they need it, right? And and so I I wonder if in this in this discussion of you know who who is a supporter of political violence, it, it's actually kind of a sideshow to the reality that you know the sort of Im- imperial core of the duopoly is is responsible for political violence that both will uh, both will uphold. I think of the example of uh, Julian Assange as well. I mean, should we not consider that? political violence. Absolutely. And the political prisoner situation in the U.S., at which there are political prisoners, and the U.S. is one of the few countries that refuses to recognize that there are people in prison for their political beliefs or actions. And in particular, as you said, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Leonard Peltier, um, Mumia has been in prison for 42, 41 years, and Leonard for 47, but others such as Mutula Shakur, almost 50 years, mm-hmm. of, um, of, of another brother who just got out after 50 years when he got in at 19. Why? They're, they are not danger to society. That's not the reason they're in. They're in because if they come out healthy and with their their mental facilities intact, they can become an example to people of the continued fight for justice. And that's what it is. Julian Assange is facing getting deep-sixed into a U.S. supermax prison because he exposed U.S. war crimes. The kind of thing that the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe defied in the time of the Pentagon Papers, they defied Supreme Court rulings and the U.S. government to expose what the U.S. was really doing in Vietnam. And the fact they were hiding that the U.S. was losing for years because of the lives of so many people, Vietnamese and U.S. Now, it's a crime to reveal those facts. Mm-hmm. It's a crime to reveal war crimes. So I do think that a large part of the American public, if not the majority, is seeing the hypocrisy of U.S. policy, of declaring democracy as a great champion of democracy when we can't even have that here in the U.S. And democracy more means the right of women to choose, the right of people to vote freely, the right of people to be free and to be able to have health care, a home, and not be evicted. What rights are we talking about? I also Gloria, wonder. may I jump in for a moment? Oh, go ahead. John. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you um, about Leonard Peltier specifically. So many of us were were um, of the of the belief that at the very end of the Obama administration, Barack Obama was going to at least commute his sentence and let him come home. That was so many years ago. Now that was six years ago, and I know Leonard has been writing about wanting to walk through the woods 
and feel the, the, the breeze on his face and, you know, see the sun from from outside prison bars. Do you think there's any hope at all that the Biden administ- administration will eventually commute his sentence? You know, when you say that, John, I have visited Leonard Peltier a few times very recently. And to hear him talk of those dreams of it's being among trees, you know, it is um, it makes you want to cry. Yeah, because he is innocent of the crime. Exactly. And even the former prosecutor, U.S. attorney during his appeals says now openly we were wrong. It's time to free him. And then he admits that there was a complete manipulation during the trial and appeals. But anyway, the thing is that um, it's very important. There's a walk going on right now of the American Indian Movement and many supporters walking 16 miles a day uh, to Washington, D.C. to gather for a march, a one-mile march to the Lincoln Memorial to call for his freedom. And it's going to get a lot of media coverage. Uh, we hope everybody in the D.C. area can join in, in the nearby area to help bring more publicity to his case. Even uh, Colonel Wilkerson, who was the chief yeah. of staff under uh, Colin, Powell, Colin Powell as Secretary mm-hmm. of State, he has issued strong letters. You ask, why haven't they freed him? Why didn't Obama do it? And why didn't Clinton do it? When Clinton had mentioned his name, he's the only president to mention Leonard Peltier's name. Because in the days before Clinton left office, 500 FBI agents armed circled the White House with signs that said, you know, don't you dare free Leonard Peltier. The FBI is the ones determined to keep him in because agents were killed in the raid that they did on native land in Pine Ridge. And the other day, uh, a reporter, Jennifer Bendery, who writes for another um, very good paper, she wrote a letter to the parole board of the federal government and said, can you tell me what's going on with Leonard Peltier? Uh, why isn't he getting parole, uh, parole? And the FBI intervened. They found out about it and they wrote and said, you don't understand the case. He's guilty. So they're putting pressure on everybody. That's why Obama didn't free him. That's why the presidents have refused, including Trump, to free Peltier because of the fear of the FBI. And who knows what else? But we must do even more to expose this. Um, There was a letter written by a very prominent person to the New York Times, an excellent letter saying, why don't we why don't you talk about this? And to the Washington Post. And the news is, is that the FBI was consulting with the New York Times. That's why the letter hasn't appeared. Wow. Wow. I won't mention the name, but I know it. Yeah, that's disgusting. Uh, wow. Gloria LaRiva, we're, we're out of time. Remind our listeners when this walk is going to be and if there's anywhere they should go to find out more about the March for Leonard Peltier or any other work that you're doing. Well, on Facebook, there's a page of the Walk for Leonard Peltier. There's been two confusing dates because the dates have changed. But keep this in mind. It's November 13. It will be a one mile march to the Lincoln memorial and it will be a rally in the afternoon for probably a couple of hours so i just guess look at uh facebook and other things but there will be there's supposed to be a 
a flyer coming out soon. It's being organized by the American Indian Movement and many other organizations. I would like to also mention that there is a project that I have uh, headed up with a lot of other people, the Atwe Project, collecting funds and sending a ship container of material aid to Cuba in light of the extreme damage to the western part of the island by Hurricane Ian. And it's H-A-T-U-E-Y, Atwe, H-A-T-U-E-Y, project.org. I hope people can visit that. Thank you so much for that. That was Gloria Lariva. She's a longtime Cuban solidarity organizer, and she's former, a former presidential candidate for the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Thanks so much. Thank you. We hope to talk to you again soon. John, we've got just— That was great. That was great. It was an honor to talk to, to Gloria Lariva, really. It's a, I, it really is. It's always a pleasure. She's, she's so well-informed, and she really walks the walk, mm-hmm. you know? Can I tell you— one more thing that bothered me about Joe Biden's speech yesterday. Oh, I'd love to hear it. He has this line about uh, America not being a zero sum society, you know, so uh, nobody at its best. Nobody is taking from anyone else in the United States. And I just think I think about Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. Yes. And I think yes. about Amazon uh, delivery drivers, contractors being systematically robbed of their tips, you know, yes. Uh, I, I think about, you know, I, I think about that with in relation to uh, our, our Cuba policy. Right. I think about how our how our health insurance system works. And I just think, again, how can you ask anyone to believe this? You know, it's it's patently not true. No, it doesn't have to be this way. But this is the society that you have helped erect. Right. And this is the one that you defend. And so, again, to say if you believe in democracy and vote democratic, what you're supporting the zero, you know, this non-zero sum society that we that we've created again, it just beggar it beggars belief. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, very disappointing. I have one other headline uh, for you, John, that uh, merits a a much bigger discussion. But apparently, um, just earlier this week, the federal government has launched its first investigation into a woman being denied uh, life-saving, medically necessary abortion services during Mm -hmm. a medical emergency. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the state of Missouri. Yeah, comes from Missouri. Uh, Doctors denied services to a woman who needed an abortion, whose pregnancy was no longer viable and which was threatening her life. Uh, She eventually had to leave that hospital and uh, cross the state border uh, to get the abortion in Illinois before she became septic and died. So um, uh, it didn't take very long for for, you know, the instances of these two arise. We might be able to get into that story a little bit more tomorrow. But that's all we got time for today. Thanks to everybody who Good joined show. us. Yes, it was. It was a fun one, except and complete with technical difficulties. <laughs> uh, you know, hopefully back for a smoother one tomorrow. Thanks to all of you for listening on behalf of John and myself. We'll see you Friday. <laughs>